We hope everybody had a wonderful July 4th weekend, and now we're back with this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston, and Jane Cahoon. Did you all have a wonderful weekend? It was lovely. Yes, absolutely. Let's go back and do it again, right? Let's just go back in time, start over. We do have lots of news to talk about. Let's begin. Why is Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley raising alarms about how to pay for a new jail? Leila Tassi, it's about time somebody besides us raises these alarms. <laughs> I know, right? This is another great story here as Courtney Astolfi continues to kind of peel back the layers of the onion on the question of how the county is going to pay for this $500 million new jail without raising taxes as County Executive Armin Budish has promised. But he won't say how. He won't say how. And last week, Courtney explored the county's current debt load of $1.25 billion, which won't even begin to come off the books until about 2027. So Prosecutor Mike O'Malley, who's a key figure on the 12-member steering committee that's been planning the jail for the past two years, read Courtney's story and was alarmed that the county can't afford this project necessarily, at least not until 2027. So he wants to see an independent review of the county's finances. Independent, because as Courtney pointed out, Budish's take on how bad the debt really is has changed in recent years. Several years ago, he told County Council and Cleveland.com that the county had maxed out its credit card and would be buried in debt for at least the next decade and would have to rethink its involvement in, in a lot of the projects that were planned at the time. Today, he says, the county has plenty of debt capacity. It could borrow another billion dollars if need be. So O'Malley said... A review is in order to make sure the county is on solid ground as it plots ahead on this project. After all, the county is already paying its point person, Jeff Applebaum, a bunch of money to manage the project. And they're about to hire a criteria architect for $8 million. So let's get a handle on the county's debt and hear the financing plan for this project. Interestingly, I thought, you know, O'Malley even went a step further and criticized the county's priorities, which seem to be focused on hotels and convention centers and stadiums and arenas, rather than the primary functions and basic services that that people expect. Well, stop so, there a sec. Yeah. Stop there a sec. Because we were all around when they were building the hotel and the convention center. And I guess none of us, nobody said, hey, we might need a new jail down the line. Should we right. be wiping out our borrowing limits? I mean, but he raises a good point. Where was that kind of public discussion about what are the long-term capital needs for this county instead of flying by the seat of our pants? That's, I mean, ex- th- th- exactly. And who, yeah, where were, where was that discussion? On the other hand, you know, the the need for the jail was really ramped up in the last couple of years as all of the the atrocities and the the poor conditions and all of that started to come to light. And there have been a a number of of lawsuits filed against the county in regards to that. So the urgency is is, uh, greater today about the jail than perhaps it was when they were planning these, you know, glamour projects. (laughs) So, So one of the things that surprised me in the story was the defensiveness of counsel, both Republican and Democrat. Uh, basically, they seem to say, well, we know we need the jail, so Definitely. We, we, we have to do it. But again, it's their job to ask these questions. Is that why Michael Malley is looking for an independent review? Because the people who are supposed to be doing this are not I, doing I definitely it? think that could be part of it. I mean, county council had a hearing last week that was two hours long, where they it was the first time they were briefed on the details of the jail. And, and they asked zero questions <laughs> 
about the financing plan. So Courtney spoke to a number of them for this story and asked them, you know, how they felt about the project's affordability. And they were like, yeah, well, you know, it'd be nice if we knew how we were going to pay for it. But but, you know, the jail is a necessity. So we're fine with spending the money, whatever, you know, it costs. Uh, You know, and they said when one of the council members said, oh, I'm sure that that Armin Budish will have a plan to us post haste. <laughs> so, well, let, let, let me, let, let's talk about Armin Budish a little bit. I saw that there were people out in parades for July 4th wearing Armin Budish T-shirts, which is ah. a pretty good sign he plans to run again. Interesting. He has said he will not raise taxes to pay for this, but I wonder if he's got something kind of sleazy going on where what he's going to try and do is an extend a tax increase that we've already had, like in the sales tax so that he could say it's not an increase even though it is yeah well we will explore that you know courtney is on this and i i know that uh you know she'll she'll get to the bottom of this sooner than than armin budish would like (laughs) (laughs) well and he's got competition chris ronayn told people at uh, july 4th celebrations he is running he'll make a formal announcement this fall yeah he is a formidable democratic opponent and and i know a lot of people will get behind him because there is so much dissatisfaction with the lack of leadership by armin budish you're listening to this week in the cle did new york just blink Has Little Ohio drawn blood in its battle to attract New Yorkers to the Buckeye State? Laura Johnston, why did social media erupt overnight Friday about this New York-Ohio spat? Yeah, this is kind of crazy. New York City's official government Twitter account, which has more than 1.3 million followers, posted a tweet about 6 p.m. on Friday. It showed the skyline over New York with like a gloomy sky and says a gloomy day in New York City is still better than a sunny day in Cleveland. Mm. And it's it's like, <laughs> what? Um, so, I mean, we think this is a basis from this Ohio uh, is for leaders campaign that Jobs Ohio launched trying to entice business owners in major cities like Boston, New York, and Seattle to consider moving to Cleveland. There's digital ads, there's billboards, there's social media. There's ads in New York City that say your buildings are taller or taxes are smaller or go from having a living room to having room to live. And so, but that's an Ohio-based campaign that's not specifically cleveland i i just feel like well yeah although destination cleveland is is kind of the center of this what shocked me about this is that it is like new coke they did blink we must be causing some harm there because you're new york city yeah you, you think you're better than everybody the island at the center of the world right. Absolutely. you don't you don't think little ohio can do any damage but they have to fire back like that it's so mean too i mean i just don't think this is it's the so right unnecessary play. six feet very of petty a holiday very petty. Weekend. <laughs> nobody like we weren't you know it wasn't like the indians were playing the yankees or something it just like came out of nowhere but it was retreated retweeted nearly uh, 1,300 times, quote tweeted 5,500 times. Tons of Clevelanders came out with photos of a gorgeous sunny weekend in Cleveland of the lake, of the skyline, of baseball games, whatever. Some former New Yorkers were like, yep, never moving back. Um, Dan Malthrop, the head of the city club, said New York City was punching down. People were making fun of New York for having its football stadium in New Jersey. The cost of <laughs> real estate, crime, um, parks, clean drinking water. I mean, the people were just like listing you, off the reasons they'd rather be in Cleveland. 
you've got to think Jobs Ohio is just laughing itself silly. They made this investment in this campaign, and now they are getting more free publicity than they could ever have gotten. <laughs> New York just gave Jobs Ohio everything it wants. It's putting more attention on this, which means more people go, huh? I wonder what's so special about Ohio. I got to check that out. I'm sick of the congestion in New York. This was a stupid move, a venal move, and a great move for Ohio that yeah. New York took the shot. And New York in the summer is not a place. I mean, I lived in New York City for a year, and I I mean, it was like going in the subways, like walking into a blow dryer, but it stinks <laughs> way worse, right? So, I mean, if you're in New York City and you're not getting out like Cleveland's looking pretty good to you right now. I yeah, think. I, I I was amazed that they did this. This was a major victory for Ohio. Cool stuff. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is the victory that Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost is claiming over the federal government everything he says? Or did he really win based on kind of a minor technicality? Jane Cahoon, I was interested in, in the judge's actual logic on this one. What are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I'm no lawyer and I'm not sure it's a technicality, but but the ruling is definitely narrowly written. Nevertheless, we got to give Dave Yost his victory here. It, it was significant. He was challenging the federal government's ability to forbid Ohio from using coronavirus relief money to, to pay for tax cuts. He um, He went to court over that. So federal judge Douglas Cole of the Southern District, Ohio, his reasoning was basically the tax mandates language falls short of what settled law requires in terms of such clarity. So, I mean, I think he's just saying it, it, it wasn't clear enough in the law, but that was enough for him to issue a permanent injunction blocking the U.S. Treasury from enforcing that in, in Ohio. And <clears throat> excuse me, as I said, the ruling was rather narrowly uh, written, so it's it doesn't apply nationwide. Uh, but Yost, of course, <laughs> characterized it as a monumental win, you know, saying the Biden administration reached too far, seized too much and got its hands slapped. You know, well, he tried so to make it. This is about states rights. And it wasn't. It was about the law was too confusing to figure out, which we kind <laughs> of knew because because when we started raising questions about the tax cut in the Ohio budget, it took legislators fumbling about for a week to come up with a legitimate reason why that didn't violate the federal law by claiming, oh, our revenues are up, so we're not using that money for tax cut. It's nearly impossible to trace the dollars to say yeah. this didn't pay for a tax cut. And I think the judge looked at it and said, yeah, this, this kind of bogus. There's no way of enforcing it. it Dave Yost should have just said, I was right that they, they didn't have the right to do this. And, and I'm glad I walked away. But to make it sound like he won one state's rights. You know, yeah, it's always separation of powers and all that. He was it's always interesting when that, the but... attorney general of Ohio goes on about local control because then he fights it when they pass a law taking it away <laughs> from the cities. Anyway, it's, it is a victory for Dave Yost, but it is not quite the victory. He's claiming uh, he should be a little more measured in his celebration. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are public health officials saying about the racial disparity in Cuyahoga County for coronavirus vaccinations? Leila Tassi, we are seeing alarming increases pretty much worldwide and in the United States for infections because of the Delta variant, which is raging apace. There's another one now. It's called the Lambda variant. That's even worse. 
So what are health officials saying about getting more black people vaccinated? Cameron Fields spoke to many sources who pointed to several reasons for the disparity that we're seeing. So as of Thursday, about 57 percent of Cuyahoga County's white residents have received their first round of vaccinations, while just 32 percent of the county's black residents have have received a first shot. About three percent of those who have had a dose did not disclose their race. So so there's a little bit of uh, um, it's hard to tell uh, with some some people. So so why are vaccination numbers lagging among the county's black community? Well, when the vaccine first rolled out, there was the question of access. Was the shot being administered at enough sites within the black community? There was also the question of transportation. And there was the question of internet access. For a long time, you had to sign up online and the digital divide is a problem for many Clevelanders. But then they opened the Wolstein Center mass vaccination site downtown right on a bus line, RTA offered free transportation. One of those rideshare companies, either Uber or Lyft, also offered free rides. So not not many people took advantage of those options, to my recollection. Then the flood of people seeking the vaccine subsided. And you could find vaccine everywhere. Even the Wolstein became open to walk-ins. Today, anyone who wants a shot can get one at any pharmacy or clinic. No appointment necessary in most cases. And, And still, the Black community's vaccination rates are lagging at 32%. That points to the community's historical distrust of the government and and of medicine, distrust of the shot itself, and perhaps misinformation circulating in the community about the safety of the vaccine. Danielle Sidnor, the president of the Cleveland chapter of the NAACP, told Cameron that in the coming weeks, the NAACP will implement a messaging campaign to kind of combat that misinformation about the vaccine. She pointed out that if someone doesn't have a strong relationship with a primary care provider, they're making their decisions about the shot based on groupthink. She said, you know, all of the information that we've been able to obtain thus far, it's it's not a lack of access. It's an intentional choice for people not to get the vaccine because they don't trust the federal government. They don't tr- understand how the vaccine was able to be created so quickly. They don't understand the technology. And there's a significant amount of misinformation. So that's where they're coming at uh, to try to unpack that and, and um, hopefully turn the turn the tide. You know, I what 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 it seems like they need to do here is almost get an ice cream truck mentality and take vans out with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which doesn't need the refrigeration. It's also a traditional vaccine. So for people that don't trust the new technology and the Pfizer and the Moderna, this is the old fashioned way, the way we always get flu shots and it's a one shot only. But but why aren't city council members or others who are trusted in the neighborhoods out doing that, you know, going out and meeting people where they live, making it so easy that they can just walk down the street. A messaging campaign is one thing, but but why not just get get it to the people? I think that's a great point. In in some the the county health department says that they are starting to do that. They're taking it directly into places where people are working. They're they're trying to be more deeply embedded in the community. But, you know, I I visited one of the the testing sites, one of the pop up testing sites at the beginning of the pandemic. And that runs that ran so well. I think if they just duplicate that, just do the pop up vaccination site, even in a parking lot, drive through style, you know, just do it the way that was that was organized. It could be so successful. Uh, But but again, if the question is misinformation, that will take more 
that will take more uh, finesse, I think. So then, so then get into the churches, get to other places where there are people who are trusted by the community that can. I think help they're trying that. that. I think they're trying it. I mean, they. I I get press releases all the time from from different churches who are sponsoring vaccine clinics. Uh, the Word Church has had many vaccine yeah, clinics, they and they have an enormous congregation. So, man, I don't know. Yeah, they. They were almost a max vaccination clinic in their own right. Right. It'll be interesting to see as the Delta variant spreads because it, it's so much more contagious. I have a feeling that, that following July 4th, we're going to see a big spike. Whether people start seeing family members getting the virus and start to come around to the vaccine. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the status for kids going to college this fall? Do they or don't they have to get the coronavirus vaccine? Laura Johnston, I thought we understood this issue, but it's all upside down again. And so what's a parent to do? Right. And it could change again this week. It depends on a state bill that passed. And we're, we don't know for sure that Mike DeWine is going to sign it. But it also depends if you're going to a public school or private school. Private Schools are allowed under a state bill to require vaccinations. Public under a new state bill that has not yet been signed will not allow public schools to require it. So the bill applies to vaccines that have not received full approval from the U.S. FDA. And that includes, obviously, the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson shots, all under emergency use right now. Both Pfizer and Moderna could be fully authorized in a few months, and so it could change again. But so far, Cleveland State is the only public Ohio university to try to acquire vaccinations. And they say that if you're going to live in a residence hall, you need to be vaccinated, and that unvaccinated students need to wear a mask indoors and outside. They need to follow the social distancing guidelines and participate in surveillance testing. So it's, a you know, they have a lot of requirements for that. Um, then Bowling Green is encouraging kids to, but not requiring it. And then now the other state universities so far are not. There's some private schools like the College of Worcester, Mount St. Joseph, Denison, Kenyon, and Ohio Wesleyan that all plan to require vaccinations for students. And so far, those those would stand. Okay, I guess the, the moral of the story is if you're a parent, the smart thing to do is just get your kid vaccinated, right? And then, then I mean, if my child it. was going to college, yes, I would absolutely be getting them vaccinated before, you know, you, you go to college, you're living in close proximity with, you know, dozens of people and they, kids go to parties and, you know, they're mixing it up with all sorts of people and they're in classes with people they've never met before. And I, I would just feel so much better as a parent if my, my kid was protected. It's not just the law that's changing. I think the Delta variant that is spreading so rapidly will also turn this around. By the time we're returning to school this fall, we could see a different situation in the country because the numbers are going up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has State Representative Bill Seitz lost power after some bruising failures of late, including his failure in his work to maintain Larry Householder in the Ohio House? Jane Cahoon, my favorite story of the weekend, a great (laughs) profile of Bill Seitz, multidimensional, heard from lots of people. Good stuff. What do we uh, learn from Andrew Tobias's reporting? Well, I I think people in Capitol Square would say that this whole fight over householders' expulsion brought sites down a notch or two, but 
you know, this guy has all kinds of staying power in the legislature, you know, not just as a member, but as a leader. He, he's been in the legislature since 2000, and he's been in leadership under several different speakers, including John Houston, remember him, uh, Cliff Rosenberger, Ryan Smith, Householder, and now Bob Cup. And, you know, he's, he's one of those guys, he's, he's like a dial-a-quote type of guy. He always says something provocative during House debates, and then he mocks and antagonizes the Democratic opposition. And, you know, even though his mouth has gotten him into trouble, too, like, you know, for one, for instance, he once made a, a joke about sexual harassment at a going away party, which didn't really cost him anything. You know, he's he survived as this influential leader in the legislature. But some people were really puzzled why he fought so hard to defend Householder, who, as we know, is federally charged in a massive statehouse bribery scheme. Um, Seitz has been really combative over this, even for him, you know, both in in-house hearings and outside the official proceedings. Andrew documented how he got into this altercation at a Columbus restaurant with another Republican lawmaker who was going to vote to expel Householder and, you know, F-bombs were exchanged and so forth. No, no real... Um, punches or anything like that. But, you know, he, he was really, really, you know, uh, fired up about this, let's say. And uh, so anyway, and, and as we know, you know, who could forget the time when he got up on the House floor and insisted that House Bill 6 was not corrupt or, or when he was like unashamedly working behind the scenes, even after the scandal broke with, with the former First Energy subsidiary that now owns the nuclear plants to, to like make sure they got what they wanted from this legislation. But um, as you said, as far as Householder goes, he cites lost badly. The, the vote to expel him was overwhelming, like 75 to 21. So will there be fallout? I, you know, maybe, maybe not. Sites says he's moving on and, you know, Andrew talked to a bunch of other people who, you know, even if they don't particularly like him or agree with him, they say he's really intelligent, well-informed. He's able to work with the Democratic minority on some issues. And so it's kind of this, you know, I don't know, polarizing yet he, he well, works with people. So they, they said he's really smart, but at the same time, they're saying, so we don't get why he's back in Larry Hassel. But <laughs> he did, look, he didn't just lose big there. He was on the wrong side of everything having to do with HB6. I mean, when everybody else knew that it was forged in corruption and had to go, like you said, he's behind closed doors trying to preserve it. And what he was trying to preserve was stealing a billion dollars from the ratepayers of Ohio and giving it to First Energy, no strings attached, with no evidence of need. It was one of the worst bills in the history of Ohio. And even though he knew how it was built, he was trying to keep First Energy enriched. And I, I love that part of the story where somebody just said, I just don't get it. I, you, you have to question, why did he work so hard for Larry Householder? And it's the, the kind of the hidden meaning of that question that I, I think rises up. Uh, I, clearly, he doesn't have the juice he thought he had because he lost every step of the way. Uh, nice piece by Andrew Tobias. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did the cutting of the extra $300 in unemployment compensation, a benefit added to help people get through the pandemic, persuade people to return to the workforce? Laura Johnston, we took a look at this. Pete Krause went out and did some reporting. What did we find? 
We don't have one clear-cut answer. Pete got a lot of anecdotal evidence and a lot of on one hand and on the other hand. But most people are saying it's too early to tell because the benefits just ended. But some Northeast Ohio employers are reporting an increase in job applications and job fair participation. And I think it was the Solon Chamber of Commerce helped organize a job fair, said they attracted 70 businesses and 250 job seekers that the interest picked up considerably. So the idea is here, if you make unemployment less lucrative, people who are not working will return to the labor force more quickly. But, you know, this is a complicated question, and it's not just I'm sitting at home, should I get a job? Obviously, there's child care issues, there's COVID issues, and so a lot of things are playing into it. Uh, Pete talked to a lot of experts who, who looked at the data and they said, you know, it, it, in some states that have ended this, we're seeing increases in some where it hasn't, uh, where there's still extra unemployment. They're also seeing increases. So we looked at the Ohio data. The number of paid claims that cover all categories decreased considerably. It was about 330,000 on May 8th, but by June 19th, that had dropped to 256,000. I don't know. I think people learn to do with less. And unless they get a wage that they think is fair, they're not racing back in. It is amazing how many places cannot find the workers they need to get the job done, even when they're boosting their pay. Uh, it seems like every time you go somewhere, you, you run into it, that, there, that there's help wanted everywhere. It's an odd moment in uh, America. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out as the rest of the year unfolds. And you know, what we learn from this turning point, maybe, especially as people return to their offices after the summer. Well, as Joe Biden whispered in a press conference, pay them more. You're listening, <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. What do we know about Neil Clark, whose book containing details about the HB6 bribery scandal has created some buzz in the state house? Jane Coon, we talked about the book last week because our reporter John Keniglia got the advanced copy on it. I wanted to talk about it again because John wrote a profile about Neil Clark and it has created some buzz. Uh, we were both surprised that, that some other media outlets were reporting some really scurrilous stuff in it uh, that kind of pushed against the fairness measure that we hold dear here. So what do we learn about Neil Clark from John's story? Yeah, I should say, you know, one of the concerns over that is because Clark died by suicide in March near his home in Florida while under federal indictment in the House Bill 6 bribery scheme. Uh, he was one of five people arrested, including now disgraced former Speaker Larry Householder. So Clark was 67 and um you know, he was a power broker in Columbus for as long as I can remember, and I've been around a long time as a as a state house editor. He was a really influential lobbyist for like four decades, and um, you know, his career basically came crashing down with his arrest about a year ago. His lawyer said he basically became a pariah after that. But before that, you know, his work was about a lot more than House Bill Six. He had more than 2,000 clients. He handled dozens of campaigns and just advised countless Ohio legislators. Some of his other clients were controversial, like the Electronic Classroom of Tomorrow online charter school that that also was the uh, at the center of a scandal, and payday lenders. Um, he also worked for the nursing home industry, for manufacturers, beverage firms, nonprofits, and entertainment centers. 
he had a, a partnership with a, with a Democratic lobbyist, Paul Tips. Uh, they had State Street consultants and they were really powerful, but then they had this like ugly falling out. So he, he started, um, he rebuilt his career with another, um, he formed Grant Street Consultants and he, you know, he continued to have major, major clients. But um, so John Trace is sort of how Clark got his start. You know, he initially worked for the, um, the House lawmakers and he, you know, he worked so hard for the, the, the GOP Senate caucus that they called him the 34th senator. And so he was, you know, abrasive and um, impulsive, apparently. But uh, some people talked about him also having a compassionate side, like paying the bills of uh, medical bills for a needy child and helping somebody who was wrongfully accused of a crime. So uh, they say he had uh, he had a uh, tender side, I guess. Yeah, although that's not in the book. The, the I talked to John Coniglia a bit more about this on Friday. You know, we John's story really used the filter of the book to talk about HB6. He didn't include a lot of really ugly material that's in it. I mean, Clark in his book discussed mental health issues of people in the state house and in the media. And he, he, you know, he lodged some very, very specious charges against public officials based on the flimsiest of evidence and fourth hand. Uh, we didn't report that because as you said at the beginning, he has a credibility issue. He's under indictment. He died by suicide. Um, and he left his book to kind of plague people, but others did report some of that stuff, which I was surprised to see. I think you were too. Yeah, I was. And, uh, because, you know, I mean, even though Clark says in, I, in his book that he, he thinks the case against him was, was weak, you know, he obviously, uh, decided to just check out, you know? Yeah. And he really scorched the earth. John was taken aback by pretty much how wicked he was in some of his charges and what he said about people, ugly stuff. So I, 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 I hear the tender side, but, but the book is not that at all. You're listening to this week in the CLE at does it for the Tuesday after July 4th weekend. I hope you all have a good Tuesday. I'm not working the rest of the day. I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks Jane. Thanks Laura. Thanks Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.